If you'll take your copy of Scripture and turn to Isaiah 53. I'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 53 this morning before Pastor Nate comes to speak on the topic. Isaiah 53, begin reading in verse number 1. Follow along as I read if you would. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Thank you, Brent. As we start this morning, you can be in prayer for Pastor Pete and Pastor Will as they are on vacation. Pastor Will meant to be back today, but because of a snowstorm, they were trapped in Minnesota. And so uh, he will be coming back, I believe, Lord willing, tonight. So you can be in prayer for them as they travel through the weather. During a war between Britain and France, men were drafted into the service by a means of a lottery system. So a man's name was picked And then they would ask him, in fact, they would tell him, you're going to serve in war. Well, on one occasion, the authorities came to a certain man and told him that he was among a group of people who were being drafted. But he refused to go. He said, I was killed in battle two years ago. Now, Understandably, at first, the officials questioned his sanity. But he said, and in fact insisted, that this was indeed the case. He claimed that the military records would show that he had been shot dead in battle. Now, of course, the officials say something like, well, how can that be? You're standing before us right now. And he responded to them the first time that he was drafted, a very close personal friend came to him and said, look, you have a big family, I'm not married, I don't have any dependents, I'll take your name and your address and I will go in your place. And sure enough, when they examined the military records, that is indeed what the record showed. This rather unusual case was referred to Napoleon Bonaparte, who decided that the country had no legal claim on that man. He was free. He had died in the person of another. 
Now, folks, this morning we have the special privilege as God's people to gather around the Lord's table and remember the tremendous accomplishment that Jesus achieved in our place. And even if you have observed the Lord's Supper many times in the past, I believe that a close look at Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, just three little verses, will awaken our hearts a renewed love for Christ through a deepened understanding of an aspect of Christ's work on the cross that is critical for our salvation. Now, what aspect of the cross is that? It's his supreme substitution. You see, folks, in the scriptures leading up to our passage this morning, specifically verses 1 to 3 that Brent read for us, Isaiah is describing God's servant who has identified as Jesus Christ, our Savior, in the New Testament through the fulfillment of these prophecies. It says here in the verses immediately preceding the section, Isaiah emphasizes that this servant will accomplish God's mission, but he's not going to do it with the fanfare that you would expect from a king. He's not going to be born with great pomp and circumstance. Instead, people are going to reject him as he lives a life of relative obscurity. Despite his lack of public appeal, Isaiah prophesies that Jesus will perform an act of substitution that, though puzzling, would take the punishment of sins and serve as a powerful act of redemption for the world. And we're going to see three things in specific. Three things about Jesus' substitution that were true both in his day and are still true today. And I believe if we take the time to examine and meditate upon these three aspects of the substitution, that this will in, in warm our hearts. That we will be encouraged to worship God in a deeper way as we observe the Lord's Supper. So just briefly this morning, folks, first of all, Jesus' substitution was puzzling. Let's look first at verse 4. Isaiah writes this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You see, the very first word of this verse is actually a conjunction that emphasizes that what is about to be said is totally unexpected. Specifically, it's unexpected that the servant described here, who we know is Jesus, would bear our griefs and our sorrows. You see, the typical Near Eastern understanding of suffering was that a person who suffered had done something very bad to deserve such circumstances, right? A perfect example of this is known to all of us, and that's the story of Job in the book of Job. In this case, Job's suffering leads his companions to speculate what different sins had caused him to be tormented by God in such a harsh way. In fact, page after page of Job is filled with his companions lecturing him, saying, Job, you must have done something wrong. You're in some, you're in some bad stuff. And later on in the New Testament, we see Jesus' disciples asking a question that betrays a similar worldview. They look at a man who's been born blind, born blind because of his own sins, Jesus, right? Or was it 
the sins of his parents. Who was it specifically, Jesus, who sinned to make him blind? They want to be able to draw a direct line between a particular sin and the consequences of those sins. Folks, these events here in Job and then Jesus later on are thousands of years apart. Job is perhaps one of the earliest accounts in the Bible. Jesus here in the New Testament. And people are still thinking the same thing in regards to that direct line between suffering and then the consequences of that suffering. But it's true today, isn't it? People today still assume this mindset as it's perpetuated over and over again when people assume that bad things happen to them directly correlate to something that they must have done that was bad. Right? We see this in unbelievers when they speculate about bad karma. We see this in believers when we harshly speculate about what people have done, what other Christians have done that have merited such bad treatment. Naturally then, folks, naturally the people who would witness Jesus' suffering, Isaiah predicts, would consider his griefs and sorrows to be a direct result of God's wrath poured out on Jesus for sins that he had done. And this is why Isaiah says it's so unexpected that Jesus would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows See, the word translated as griefs here might be better translated as sicknesses. And the sorrows can also refer to pains and anguish. Our existence in this world can accurately be described as full of sickness and pain. And when we look up around us, we see that. We live in a fallen world, and it reminds us on a daily basis that things are not the way that they ought to be. Babies are murdered. Truth tellers are maligned. We want to be a good father or a good mother and we try to do the right things and yet we still hurt the people that we love because we're sinful people. Our sins and their consequences have plagued the human race for thousands of years and we are hopelessly unable to free ourselves from the crushing weight of our sin. Now, the language that Isaiah uses here is tied to Leviticus 16. And if you're familiar with your, your chapter content of the Old Testament, Leviticus 16 describes the practices of the Day of Atonement. On this day, Aaron would lay his hands on the head of a live goat, and he would confess the sins of all the Israelite people. And then they would send that goat out into the wilderness, never allowing him to return. Now, Isaiah uses this language familiar to this ceremony because this is exactly what Jesus does. You see, he bears our griefs. He bears our sorrows and the sicknesses of sinners, but he doesn't just bear them along with us. He doesn't just come alongside and say, hey, I see you have a heavy load. Let me just kind of help you out with that and we'll walk side by side. Jesus doesn't bear the load along with us, he bears the load instead of us. He relieves sinners of the burdens that they are carrying and he accepts them. He shoulders them as his own. He says, this is my burden now. You can forget about it. The irony, folks, is that while this is what Jesus was doing, Isaiah predicts that the people who witness Jesus' suffering assume exactly 
what Job's friends assume. And that is that he was under God's hand of judgment. The people could not fathom that God could suffer. So if Jesus was suffering, they're proof to them that he had done something wrong. This is why Isaiah says, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Today it's still hard to believe that someone would willingly take on somebody else's burdens like Jesus did. There'd never been a precedent in the past and there never will ever be another instance or repeat of the great sacrifice that Jesus accomplished in our place. And so folks, in a few moments we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And we're going to be remembering what Jesus did for us. And this verse teaches us something that will provide tremendous encouragement and create in our hearts a deepened thanksgiving. You see, when we were laden with sickness and sorrows, he willingly offered himself to relieve us and take them on himself. And when we were overburdened, he lifted the burdens and he carried the sins of the world out of the camp as his father turned his face away from him. You see, Jesus became our scapegoat so that we would never have to face the eternal guilt and shame for our sins. So as we go to the Lord's table, let's remember we can confess the sins that we committed this week and be assured that Jesus has already paid for them in full. We don't have to approach the table feeling guilty and condemned Jesus already bore our guilt and condemnation so that we would not have to, folks. That's the point of this table. We can rejoice knowing that the Lord's table is not a ritual to atone for our sins, but a celebration of Christ's accomplishment of complete and total atonement. Finished in the past, no more to be done. And at the same time, we should expect that the world is surprised by the gospel of Christ's substitution. Right? People assumed that Jesus suffered for his own sins then. So why shouldn't we expect that his suffering for our sins would puzzle a world that isn't used to experiencing such self-sacrificing love? The gospel is surprising and strange we should expect that it will normally take repeated exposure to the gospel in order for people to actually accept it and believe it. Have you ever become discouraged because you share the gospel, you witness with people, and they never seem to believe? Have you ever shared the gospel five times, ten times with people, fifteen times with people, and they still don't believe? Let's remember that God doesn't want us to become weary in doing good. We should pursue gospel conversations recognizing that it may take five, 15, or 500 talks about the gospel before people repent and believe it. Because folks, it's God's responsibility to save. Let's take that burden off of ourselves. It's our responsibility to faithfully share. And we trust him with the fruit. We say, it's your glory, God. Just help us to be faithful.
Not only was Jesus' substitution puzzling, it was also punishment. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and look with me at verse 5. It says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Now as we consider this, ver- this verse, folks, I want us to take a look and notice the four personal pronouns that Isaiah uses for God's servant, Jesus. So right at the beginning he says this, he, and then he says he again, and then him, and then his. Over and over again, focusing on this, these are used emphatically to shine a light on Jesus' actions to show us that Jesus and nobody else did this. Jesus didn't need any help to carry out his substitutionary acts. He didn't have any help in absorbing any of the punishment. He did it all himself, folks. Jesus absorbed it all in himself. The sins of the entire world on one man. And as we talked about in verse 4, describing Jesus as substituting his own condition for our burdens, in verse 5, Isaiah emphasizes the fatal nature of his sacrifice. He says that Jesus was pierced. Now, even though being pierced through with a spear or some other object doesn't necessarily mean that somebody will die from that, almost every time it does. And looking back, obviously in hindsight, we know that Jesus was pierced unto death. But every single time that this word is used, it's talking about a violent and very painful experience. It's likely that the original readers of Isaiah would have pictured a man being slain by a sword when he was pierced. But that's not all Isaiah says. He also says that Jesus was crushed. Now, in some English translations, and in fact, you may have memorized this verse in a translation that uses the word bruised instead. But I would suggest to you that this this word does not do justice to the severity of the act. Right Now, when we talk about a bruise, at least in our time period, we're usually talking about something from which we can recover. Right? Rub some dirt on it. You'll get better. But Isaiah means to communicate a fatal crushing. There's no recovery. There's no coming back from that. If you're crushed in this way, you're not going to be healed. And furthermore, folks, in addition to physical crushing, it's likely that Isaiah means to emphasize the psychological, emotional, and spiritual suffering that Jesus endured. Because if you search the other times that this word crushed is used in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, almost every single time it refers to emotional or spiritual crushing. In fact, earlier I mentioned the story of Job. And in Job, after he's been lectured for pages and pages by his companions, Job stands up and he says this in chapter 19, verse 2. He says, how long will you torment me and crush me with words? 
Now, we're under no illusion that they were physically beating Job. They weren't beating him up that way. And yet it's clear, Job considered himself to be assaulted emotionally. They were bashing him down. They were crushing him spiritually. And folks, although we don't usually think about the physical pain, or we only think about the physical pain of being crucified, we often neglect the spiritual, emotional, and psychological effects that Jesus experienced on the cross, specifically his separation from the Father. We sing about this in hymns like His Robes for Mine, where we say, I I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost. Jesus forsaken, God estranged from God. You know, maybe we as humans, we become callous to our sins separating us from God because that's just what we know. But think about this. Jesus had always been perfectly united and connected with his Father. There was never so much as a shadow of separation between the two of them. But at the cross, the Father looked away from his Son as he suffered for the sins of the entire world as he carried them on his back. And at that time, Isaiah says, that crushed Jesus. Yes, the crowds mocked him. Certainly, the soldiers spit at him. Even Jesus' own followers deserted him in his most needed hour. And I'm sure all of those things bothered Jesus. But his father turned away from him as Jesus bore the sins of the world And this crushed him. And at the end of this verse, Isaiah uses the word wounds, giving the impression that Jesus has sustained fatal injuries in battle. In fact, one commentator remarks, these terms graphically portray the depth of the suffering of the servant, the seriousness of his pain, and the extent of God's smiting. It's important for us also to notice how Isaiah uses different terms to describe our own sins. You see, he calls them transgressions, and he calls them iniquities. You know, transgression regularly refers to our deliberate rebellion against God. Iniquities reference our perverted acts when held up to the light of God's perfections and his perfect demands of his creatures. So the fact that Isaiah uses both of these terms, the variety describes the full range of our sinful acts against God and how Jesus, God's Son, faced a fatal punishment for sins that merited such deadly consequences. And yet the emphasis that Isaiah makes is the astounding reminder that these punishments did not fall on the people who had merited them. No, they fell upon Jesus, the perfect Son of God. And this verse clarifies that these are not just maladies that the human race carries innocently, but punishments that are due mankind as a result of sin. So in other words, when Jesus was pierced and crushed, it was penal. It was punishment. It paid the punishment 
for our sins. And more than this, Isaiah explains that the punishment that Jesus endured was designed to bring us to peace with God because we were at war with him. This happens as Jesus satisfies God's holy wrath by absorbing it in its totality. Now those who merited God's wrath enjoy peace with him. And as a result, sinful men enjoy healing. The healing that comes from a restored and new relationship with God. Now many of you know, a few weeks ago, our church invited an ordination council to come and examine Pastor Will regarding his doctrine. Now, during an ordination council, basically, we go through the the major doctrines of the Christian faith, and we go through them one by one, and the different members of the council examine the ordinee, I can't remember exactly the word, the person who's going to be potentially ordained if he can satisfactorily answer the questions. And they're going to ask him questions regarding that doctrine and what he's written in his doctrinal statement ahead of time and any other questions that they can think about. And Pastor Will had a very, very, very long doctrinal uh, questioning. Let's put it that way. And he did a great job. When we came to the section on Christology, I asked him the question, based on Philippians 2, what did Christ empty himself of? Maybe you've asked yourself that question before. You read Philippians 2, it says, Christ emptied himself. So logically, we should ask, what did he empty himself of? Well, as is often the answer in Scripture, if we continue to read, the answer is given in the next several phrases of Philippians 2. The emptying consists of, first of all, his taking on the form of a servant, and second of all, being born in the likeness of men. Now, we struggle to see how this is emptying or how it's humiliation because we're pretty proud of ourselves as the human race, right? We think we've done some pretty great things. We're pretty used to our human limitations. We think we're pretty smart because we invented iPhones and we've discovered and harnessed nuclear energy and because we put a man on the moon and because we have things like Facebook I mean, we're intelligent people, right? But to the God who created everything and the God who's currently holding all things together and is deserving of all glory and all praise from everything that he's created, it is incredibly humbling to be confined to one limited human body and to live among the mortals whom he's created. And in fact, Jesus was used to constant worship by angels, but this month, December, we're remembering how he was born in a barn. And though he was God, he wet his diapers. And if it's humbling enough for God to live as a man, as a human, Imagine then the humiliation of wearing the guilt of the humans that he created and enduring the shame and punishment reserved for criminals when you've never so much as told a lie. Imagine that. Let's remember that Christmas is a time when we celebrate that Jesus emptied himself for us. 
he willingly lived in the humbling state of humanity and then suffered the punishment of all humans. So as we observe the Lord's table this morning, what a celebration it is when we consider what we learn from this verse. You know, perhaps you came to worship God this morning with a troubled conscience. Maybe you got into a fight with your spouse on the way to church and you felt like a hypocrite singing songs of worship and praise to God this morning. Maybe you feel like you don't deserve to worship him this morning. It's possible that you came to church today with a guilty conscience because you've been caught in a sinful habit this week and it's stealing your joy in God. It's very likely that there are several of us in situations like this or like these this morning. And I want us to remember a few things that God has been telling us through Isaiah this morning. We absolutely are guilty and in no way deserving of the privilege of worshiping the holy God of the universe this morning on the basis of our own merit. But Jesus was pierced and crushed fatally so that we wouldn't have to face the punishment for those sins that have ensnared us this week. Jesus took upon himself the chastisement so that he could restore peace in our relationship with God. This means that we don't have to feel guilty or separated from God this morning. Jesus died to bring us near to God. And as a result of Jesus' finished work, we are spiritually healed. Let's enjoy the benefits of that healing this morning as we celebrate his work as our substitute. You know, it's good to come to the Lord's table with a holy confidence in what Jesus has done and the acceptance that it's merited us. But it's also possible to come to the table with an unholy swagger. A confidence in your own acceptance before God based at least partly on what you've done. Do you ever go into a time of communion thinking, man, I'm so glad it's communion Sunday this week because I was good this week. I don't have to worry about my standing with God because I haven't haven't done any major sins this week. You know, this thought pattern betrays a mindset that your own righteousness is based on what you've done and not what Christ has done. Folks, we aren't more or less worthy to stand before God based on what we've done. We're all completely unworthy to stand before God based on what we have done because we deserve everlasting punishment because of our performance. But we rejoice because Jesus' supreme substitution took our punishment in our place so that now God looks on us and he says, you are worthy to come into my presence because my son's worthiness, because of what my son has done, and that worthiness has been transferred to you. And we have a seat at the Lord's table, not because we've been good this week, but because Jesus is perfect. And when God looks at us, he sees that perfection. So Jesus' substitutionary act is absolutely puzzling to others. It's also penal. It takes the punishment for our sins. But last of all, we ask the question, is there a limit to how much 
sin Jesus' substitution can handle. His atoning works couldn't possibly deal with my sin and the sins of millions of other people, right? I mean, this is where that opening illustration really breaks down. Because sure, one man can go in my place. But can one man go in the place of the entire army? That's the question we're really asking this morning. So if we look at verse 6, we're going to see that Jesus' substitution is absolutely powerful. Isaiah writes this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Isaiah returns to the subject of our absolute rebellion towards God. Three times in this verse, he reminds us of the universality of sin in all of mankind. Notice he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Three times. Now this time, Isaiah compares our actions to those of sheep. Now sheep are not intelligent animals, folks. When they're separated from the shepherd, they wander in whatever direction looks pleasant at the time with absolutely no regard for the consequences. In the same way, we have all gone after our own fleeting pleasures and chased after whatever sin seemed pleasant to us at the moment. And as a result, Isaiah emphasizes that we are all culpable There isn't a single human who is without need of saving by the shepherd. Have you ever stopped and looked at the world that we live in this way? Our world is filled with people. People who have wandered away from God's perfect design and purpose for their lives. People who are afraid to be left alone with their own thoughts because they don't want to have to face the reality of why they do what they do. People who feel like something is wrong and so they champion this cause over and over again and then the next day they wake up and they decide, no, actually the opposite thing is wrong and everybody who still believes what I believed yesterday is on the wrong side of history. That's what we're doing, folks. We're idiots. We're sheep who chase after whatever we think is right and feel like at the moment. We're wandering around in the wilderness of sin, trying to plug the holes of meaninglessness with different hobbies and causes and goals, and yet these things never bring satisfaction because we were created to bring glory to the God of the universe, not to bring glory to ourselves. So long as we ignore our purpose for existence, we are sheep wandering around in the wilderness of sin, picking at the scraps when God designed us to feast at the table forever. This picture that Isaiah paints, um, it doesn't evoke any sympathy for us. Now my daughter loves to read board books. She loves sheep and other helpless creatures which is just about all the creatures in her mind. She kisses polar bears and lions and anything else that looks helpless to her. And so sheep, uh, we have this rendition of Psalm 23. 
and there's this lamb that you follow along through every page, and every time she comes to it, she gives it a kiss, and oh, mwah, I love this lamb. It's so cute. And so she might look at this passage in her immaturity and think, this is a, this is a pretty picture that we have. We're sheep. But we have to understand, folks, this is, there's no sympathy that should be evoked for these sheep. You see, the next few words prove that our wandering is not forced. It's not against our nature or our desire, I should say. Isaiah says, we have turned. Turning indicates deliberate sin. God said, I created you to receive maximum happiness and joy and rejoicing in me. You will be my friends and we will walk together in fellowship forever. And we said, no. We want to go our own way and find happiness as we see fit. No, this picture of us wandering around helplessly in our own sins doesn't evoke sympathy for us because we chose this path by deliberately sinning against our loving Creator. We as the sheep have openly rebelled against the shepherd and we should not expect any help from him. And yet remember all those personal pronouns from verses 4 and 5 that emphasize that Jesus did this and Jesus alone? Well, notice how verse 6 starts out very differently to show a very stark contrast between verses 4 and 5. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. You see, the contrast here makes us stop in our tracks and say, to think that he would do everything in verses 4 and 5 for people like verse 6. People like us. People who have spurned God's love and chase after every fleeting fancy that this world offers instead of everlasting joy with the Creator God. And yet God punished him for all of our sins. See, the contrast here between what we deserve and what Jesus did for us anyway is powerful. And yet the key focus in this verse is new. Notice he says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us. What's the next word? All. Isaiah highlights not only the universal need for salvation, but that Jesus is capable of meeting that need. You see, Jesus' substitution is completely unexpected. It's punishment for sins, but folks, it's also powerful. There isn't a sinner beyond the reach of God's grace because the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so you might be here today and you've grown up going to church and you know a lot of the Bible and you could pass a comprehensive theology test. But your relationship with God consists entirely on what you've done or what you know. It hasn't changed who you are. You're still the same person. But you say that you have faith in God, and so you're fine. James has a chilling name for this. He calls it demonic faith. 
You see, the demons know all about God. They could pass every theology test. They know all the right Sunday school answers. They probably could have done a better job at an ordination council than any of us in terms of knowing the right theology. And yet they don't have a new heart. The problem is that demonic faith isn't real faith. It knows a lot because it has a lot of religious experience. But when it comes down to it, a person like this has never repented of a sin and placed his faith in Christ to save him. It's only when you place your faith in Christ that God gives you Jesus' righteousness and you now have a seat at his table and you receive a new heart so that you can begin to be changed back into the image from which we've been marred since the fall. The image of Christ, a Redeemer. If you're here this morning and your relationship with God is based only on facts, Christ's substitution is powerful enough to save you today if you will repent and believe and by faith turn from your sins and trust in Christ alone to save you. It's absolutely powerful enough to save you today. Because you see, the best news that you can receive today is that Jesus is holding out his arms to you all day long and asking you to come and receive rest from your burdens. You may be laden with sin, but he will relieve you of every sin and the guilt that you carry if you, by faith, will turn from your sin to trust in Jesus as your one and only Savior. He has promised that if you do this, he will not cast you out, but he will embrace you as a child. For those who have received Christ here this morning, I want to invite you to rejoice in the supreme substitution of your sins for Jesus' righteousness. You see, even though we are sinners, Jesus' substitution is powerful enough to take our complete penalty. And as we enter into our time of remembrance around the Lord's table, let's take that time Let's take the joy that though we were once enemies, now God communes with us as his precious family. So let's not heap on guilt or shame. Let's revel in the fact that Jesus has already borne our guilt and carried our shame far away so that now we only know peace with God. Let's pray. Father God, I am thankful for the substitution of your Son, Jesus Christ, in my place. I don't even have the full awareness of my own sinfulness. It's that bad. My heart is deceitful, above all things, desperately wicked. I sure don't know it. And yet what I know of myself is certainly enough to condemn me to hell for all eternity. Yet what you have done in my place is powerful. And though it puzzles me why you would do that for a sinner who rebelled against you, I'm thankful 
And I rejoice that you've given us this time now to come around a table and remember what you have done in our place. So I pray for every believer in here that we might rejoice together. One final time this year in 2019, we might rejoice in the supreme substitution of Jesus Christ for our sins. And I pray for those in here who perhaps don't know you. Sure, they they probably know a lot about you. They might know a lot of answers. They might know the books of the Bible. They might know a lot of what's in the Bible. But they've never repented and they've never believed. And that faith is dangerously demonic. Father, I pray that they might today turn from their sins and trust in Christ alone to save them. I'm thankful that you promised that someone who comes to you with that humble and contrite spirit of repentance and believes in you, you won't cast them out. You draw them to yourself, you justify them, and you change them. And I pray that you change us, Father. Even as we rejoice together, continue that work of changing us into that image of Christ. It's because of him that we pray. Amen.